you're going to hear us talking to a very fascinating individual who talks about the flow state. And what's interesting, I don't know about you guys, but the first thing that popped into my mind when he was talking about the flow state or being in that in that in that uh, the zone or zen was prime. state was when we created Maps Prime. 100%. Ooh, I yes. remember cuz he talks about individual flow state and then there's group flow state and I remember man when we were up in Reno creating Maps Prime I mean, we've created lots of programs together, and there's definitely times when we're in the when we're in that flow state. But when we made Prime, mm. like I had never felt that kind of group flow state like I did with Prime for that long. Like the entire three days that we were there, it was this hyper focus. We were all on the same train of thought. We were all so much on fire that we lost track of time. I remember we'd look at the clock and be like, "Holy shit, guys! It's five o'clock. We better eat something." I mean, it was insane, and the result of that is. But of all of our prog- of all of our, our programs, I'm very proud of all of our programs. But the one program I would say is the most revolutionary, the most unique, the most different, the most biggest game changer. Just the biggest game changer is Maps Prime. There's nothing like it out there. Nobody's even attempted to teach you how to program what you do to prime your body for your workout and how to finish your workout, how to fortify it. Um, nobody nobody's done this before. It's breakthrough. I've had. Uh, countless uh, trainers uh, and people in the industry who I respect very highly who say, my God, this is a total game changer. It's one of those things that you you do it the first time and you can tell right away in your workout that you did something that has contributed positive, positively to your progress, to muscle gain, to fat loss, to all those different things, mobility. I mean, MAPS Prime is the program you can add to any program or any activity. You can use it before you go on a run. You can use it before you go on a, in a meeting a business meeting, it'll set up your central nervous system. You can use it before you do your workout, of course, before you do a competition to perform better. Maps Prime is that program. You can find it uh, at mindpumpmedia.com. If you want to pump your body and expand your mind, there's only one place to go. Mind Pump. Mind Pump. With your hosts, Sal Stefano, Adam Schaefer, and Justin Andrews. We just got finished talking to Stephen Kotler, uh, who is the author of a new book called Stealing Fire. This gentleman has really uh, studied and understands what it means to be in the flow state. Uh, Some people know of it as the zone or zen. Hmm. And scientists have actually identified what happens in the brain when we're in that state and have identified uh, triggers that help us get into that state. And the book Stealing Fire is about that, but it's also about how uh, high-level, you know, creative, uh, you know, individuals, athletes, Navy SEALs, uh, Fortune 500 companies, the CEOs. tools that they use yep. to get into the flow state, including using uh, psychedelic substances and altered states of consciousness. Fascinating, fascinating stuff. This is one of my favorite conversations. This is like truly mind pump. Like, like you, you sit through this and you just listen, and it's it's very fascinating. Yeah. Now, right. you, now you can find uh, his book, uh, StealingFireTheBook.com. Which, by the by the way, right now he's doing. There's all kinds of cool giveaways. So I know right now, if you do get it, I know he's got a bunch of cool stuff. I've ordered one. Yeah. Um, and uh, he also has a free quiz uh, on his website, FlowGenomeProject.com. This quiz helps you determine what, how you can put yourself in the flow state better because people are different and what mm-hmm. gets people in that state uh, spell is that different out. from it. Spell that out for everybody because I know this is – he talks about this towards the end of the episode and this is – we asked him, you know, hey, real quick, some good advice. Where does someone start? And this is actually where he directed This is where he says everybody should go to take this free quiz. Flow Genome Project, F-L-O-W-G-E-N-O-M-E Project. 
Com. So without any further ado, here we are talking to Stephen Kotler. First things first, uh, if you could explain what flow state means, what that is, um, and, and how, you, how you're studying that and why you started studying that. Perfect. Great first question. So let me just start with kind of why, what I was studying and why I was studying it. And most of what I've done over the past 30 years is ask the question, how is it that people achieve the impossible? And what I mean by the impossible is literally those paradigm shifting feats where bef- beforehand, it's not, it can't happen. This is beyond the pale. It's not going to happen. And then it, you know, it takes place. So I've spent my life, whether it's, you know, athletes pushing the bounds of kinesthetic possibility in my book, Abundance, I looked at innovators and entrepreneurs taking on impossible global challenges, poverty, hunger, those sorts of things. Um, in Small Furry Prayer, I looked at kind of the extreme edge of altruism and empathy, people working on the kind of the front lines of animal rescue, where there's very, very little credit and there's laws against you and you know that, that sort of thing. And everywhere I turned, every time you saw people doing the impossible, there was one commonality. They had all found a way to change their state of consciousness to drop into a state known as flow. And flow is technically defined as an optimal state of consciousness, a state of consciousness where we feel our best and we perform our best. More specifically, more familiarly, and you may know flow, by the way, you may call it runner's high, being in the zone, being unconscious if you play basketball. If you're a beatnik jazz musician, you call it being in the pocket. The lingo is sort of endless. Abraham Maslow called them peak experiences. Flow is something of a technical term, and uh, it technically means those moments of rapt attention and total absorption when we get so focused on the task at hand that everything else just disappears. So action and awareness will start to merge. Your sense of self will disappear completely. Time dilates, which is a fancy way of saying, hey, it passes strangely. Sometimes it'll slow down, get that freeze frame effect familiar to any of you in a car crash. More frequently, speeds up and five hours pass by in five minutes. Or what happens to all of us when we sit down to write that quickie email and we look up an hour later to realize we've written an essay. And throughout, all aspects of performance, both mental and physical, go through the roof. Excellent. I think... Uh, I feel like breathing has to be one of the like biggest first steps to that, right? I feel like anytime I, I pay attention to my breathing, that's like the first step I feel like to head in that direction. Would, would you think so? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a really critical point. Um, let me back into it for a second. Let me, I need to drop, give you one more piece of information. So one of the things we've learned, flow science goes back about 150 years. And we have a really good understanding of its psychological components. We're starting to get a picture of its neurobiology, so its mechanism, where does it come from in the brain? Um, we have a really good understanding of how much does it amplify performance. There's been lots of research on that. So we have, you know, numbers on how much it increases learning and creativity and productivity and motivation, things along those lines. And mo- most recently, building on all this work, we've started to figure out that flow states have triggers or preconditions that lead to more flow. And the first thing you need to know about these triggers, the only thing I'm going to tell you is flow only happens when all of our attention is focused in the right here, right now, present moment, exactly. So all the, what all these triggers do is they drive attention into the now, into the present moment. Now, the golden rule of flow, the most potent of all these triggers, according to 
uh, Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, the University of Chicago psychologist, who's sort of considered the godfather of political psychology, is what's known as the challenge skills balance. And it means we pay the most attention when the challenge of the task slightly exceeds our skill set. You want to stretch, but not snap. <laughs> okay. So if I was putting this emotionally, I'd say, hey, flow is near, not on, but near the midpoint between boredom. Hey, there's not enough stimulation here. I don't give a fuck. Can I swear? Yeah, oh, absolutely. Please. We encourage um, it. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> fuck yeah. and anxiety, which is, whoa, way too much stimulation. I'm freaking out, right? In between is this sweet spot known as the flow channel. So here's the thing. That sweet spot is at the edge of our comfort zone, right? You're, you're, you're beyond our comfort zone. You're pushing slightly, which means you have you, you have a very thin threshold for more anxiety, right? Too much anxiety, your brain is going to start producing too much cortisol and norepinephrine, the stress hormones, and it will block your entrance into flow. What is the easiest way to downregulate your nervous system to calm down? Respiration. Mm. Always respiration. And in fact, I mean, really simply, if you double the length of your exhale, so if your inhale is five seconds and you're inhaling down to your diaphragm and then your exhale is 10 seconds, after you three to seven rounds, depending on your physiology and how freaked out you actually are, your stress response is going to start to melt away for the very simple reason that your brain goes, fuck man, that's a long exhale. You must be calm. Okay, I guess you're calm. So we'll calm you down. We don't need to burn all this energy making all these stress chemicals right now. Mm. It seems like a, an interesting feedback loop where, you know, feeling a certain way then feeds into the way you behave, which then feeds into how you feel. And if you interrupt any of those, uh, you know, those mechanisms or hack them, if you will, you can, you can uh, kind of direct where you're going to be in terms of being in flow or being out of flow. I mean, I've been in, a, a, I can remember a few times where I would consider myself having been in that, in that zone and there was a couple times when I was in that zone and then I became aware that I was in that zone and started thinking about the fact that I was in that zone and it took me out of it. Yeah, totally. So let me tell you two things because you've probably been in flow a ton more than you realize. And let me, uh, and then I'll, I'll, I'll kind of walk you through why you get kicked out of flow by realizing you're in flow. The first thing is flow is a spectrum experience. So there are seven psychological characteristics associated with flow loss of self-consciousness timelessness um, a sense of control over the situation even though the situation often feels out of control etc etc there's seven of these now you can be in a state of micro flow when a couple of them show up so you've got uninterrupted mm. concentration and so a merger of action and awareness so that's micro flow is you're sitting at your desk you're doing work, you're writing something, you get really absorbed in what you're doing, your sense of having a body or having to take a piss, it just goes away, right? And your action awareness start to merge and you really focus. That's micro flow. On the far extreme is macro flow, which is when all these preconditions show up at once. And it's such a powerful and strange experience that researchers for the first 50, 60 years that we were studying flow states from the 1870s to the 1950s, they thought they were looking at mystical experiences. That's William James, who did some of the foundational work on this, the Harvard psychologist, lumped flow in with his category of mystical experiences. And it was only when Abraham Maslow, who was making a study of success, and he found the same thing I found. He found that in every successful person he could meet, 
they've all found a way to shift their consciousness and drop into flow. Hmm. Albert Einstein famously used to row a boat into the middle of Lake Geneva and stare at the clouds. That was his gateway, right? There was hmm. all these different people used to have different ways in, but everybody he was studying Maslow, I mean, was an atheist. So for the first time, they went, hey, maybe this isn't mystical. Maybe it has nothing to do with you know gods or deities or religions or anything else like that, and maybe it's psychology and physiology. And that was a big shift. There's a spectrum experience, right? So you've probably experienced macro flow a couple of times, but micro flow, most people drop into it a couple times a day while they're at work without even noticing. So the question I have is it sounds, uh, flow sounds like a very individual thing. However, I feel like I've experienced it with with groups. I mean, I, with the gentleman in the room here uh, with me, when we go off and create new programs, there's been a few times where I feel like we're all in that same zone where I experience those, uh, some of those characteristics where it feels like uh, there's time distortion uh, yep. Where is this? Can this happen on a group level as well? Yeah. So it's a great, it's a great question, and you're absolutely right. There is individual flow. Me in a flow state, right? Solo athlete, tennis player, whatever. And then there is group flow, which is a group dropping into flow together. And we've a lot of us have had this experience, right? If you've ever taken part in a great brainstorming session, right, where the ideas are building on each other and really flying, and you walk out going, "Oh my God, how did that happen?" That's flow. If you've ever been to a concert and sort of got caught up in the music, right? Lost in the crowd, lost in the band, feel like you're you're one with one with the musicians, group flow. If you've seen a fourth quarter comeback in football, when it, you know, it's no longer looks like football and it starts to look like ballet because everybody is just in the right place at the right time. Often happens, I think, when Aaron Rodgers plays, but besides the point. Um, <laughs> of course you would say that when I'm a Cowboy fan, you uh, dick. Uh, <laughs> oh, sorry. I'm sorry. A little insult uh, to injury there. Yeah, that, yeah. Was, that one stung, man. But what, you know what, though? Being even a Cowboy fan, you've got to give respect to that game for mm. sure, man. Oh, yeah. For sure. So, uh, so, yeah, so there is group flow. Interestingly, I'll tell you something crazy. So uh, I have a new book coming out, Stealing Fire, and uh, the story that opens it, is a story about uh, Dev Groups, what more commonly known as SEAL Team Six, the kind of most elite of all the Navy SEAL teams, um, and it's a uh, and it, we spent a, a little bit of time getting to work with the SEALs, um, which I, I you know I just have to say right off the bat, um, there is nothing actually nerve wracking about that at all. We have lots in common. I'm a guy who puts words together in a straight line and. There are people who have real life encounters with supervillains and they need x-ray vision and delete tall buildings. So whole lot in common. <laughs> yeah. The, uh, but the point I, I actually want to make is it turns out the craziest thing about spending time with the SEALs and SEAL Team 6 is that we actually have a tremendous amount of overlap. And what we learned is that so the Navy SEALs and especially SEAL Team 6 are one of the most expensive pieces of warfighter equipment we have. It costs about $25,000 to turn Johnny on the block into a combat ready U.S. Marine. SEALs cost a lot more. Just to get through kind of basic training buds and, and into the teams, it's about a half a million dollars worth of training. Wow. To make it all the way to SEAL Team 6, we've got $3.5 million invested into each SEAL. Holy shit. Huge expenses. So, so when they talk about you know the story we tell, there were 25 guys on the team. Hmm. It's an $85 million machine. Right. So the question, the obvious question is, what the hell are taxpayers getting for their money? Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. that's interesting. How many scientists are we talking is, about? Yeah. 
once you get past a level of like an incredible, but a level of physical fitness that they all share, which is just, you know, through the roof and exceptional and, you know, what is essentially basic skills acquisitions, all the stuff they need to know how to do to do their jobs. Every single thing we think of as SEAL training is a giant filtration system that is weeding out those candidates who cannot flip the switch. That's their term for it. Flip the switch and drop into group flow. And the reason is when you're in group flow, you get absolute symbiosis. You get a hive mind team performing in one. Mm -hmm. situational awareness goes through. There's, this happens, by the way, for neurobiological reasons. When you are in flow, information processing in the brain goes through the roof. For a bunch of reasons, we take in more information per second. We pay, we, uh, we can find connections between that information uh, and older ideas or so pattern recognition far more quickly, and we can act on it far more quickly. And what that amounts to is massive amounts of situational awareness. They can act and move as one. And it was interesting. They told us the hardest thing about being a Navy SEAL isn't knowing when to shoot. It's when knowing not to shoot. Because when they, they, especially in the hostage rescue situations, they're running into rooms where there are bad guys who want to kill them. Right. And people they absolutely cannot shoot. Right. And these are rooms are dark, hostile, way behind enemy lines, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the level of situational awareness, because all it takes, right? All it takes is one person sort of dropping out and panicking, and then it could be an international incident, or they could fail on their mission. Take your pick. So the ability to flip this switch, they literally said it was the secret to being a SEAL. Hmm. And the interesting thing, by the way, is, of course, it's not just the SEALs. Most of the Fortune 100 companies that we work with, Google, you know, Facebook, these kinds of organizations, Group flow is also, I mean, they're doing group innovation, right? That's what's going on there. And we know from the original research into group flow is done by a guy named Keith Sawyer at the University of North Carolina. He spent 15 years videotaping and analyzing Second City Television, the improv theater group mm -hmm. that kind of fed most of Saturday Night Live, mm -hmm. looking for when does this group of people drop into flow together? When can you see creativity jump? When does things really start to move and sing? And you know, so A, we now know that group flow has 10 triggers and organizations that are really good at it build their organization around these triggers. In fact, the best example I can give you, and I write about this in my book, Bold, Skunk Works, which are sort of the greatest innovation accelerator in the past 100 years in business. Um, and they're, you know, secret innovation laboratories inside of companies, but separate from companies, uh, pioneered by Lockheed Martin back in the, in, in the 40s to help us win the war. Um, and build fighter planes faster than anybody ever had before. And now he's used by, you know, everybody, Walmart, Nordstrom, Apple, Steve Jobs famously, you know, I was talking to John Scully about this and he was talking about um, when Steve Jobs went off to build the Macintosh, the app, the first Mac, like John Scully wasn't even allowed in the building. Like he broke it. He, he, you know, took out his own skunk works, little building, small team famously said, you know, it's much better to be a pirate than join the Navy. He was talking about running a skunk works. And one of the reasons skunk is so effective is, and th there are rules for building a skunk works. Kelly Johnson, the engineer, created them, established them back in the 40s, and all of them are group flow triggers. It's really amazing what he managed to do, but he sort of laid down this framework that we've now used for 100 years worth of top innovation. Um, think about what's coming out of Google X, their skunk works, where you get Google Glass and AI and autonomous cars. 
at this level of paradigm shifting innovation. Um, and it's because skunk works in general are packed with group flow triggers. So the teams drop into group flow, you get massively heightened creativity. Research shows that inflow creativity, because pattern recognition spikes so much, um, creativity can go up 400 to 700%. So that it's a tremendous spike in creative problem solving. Wow, that's that's night and day. That's a huge that's a huge difference, and I, now I'm, you know, we had I had a conversation um, with uh, my co-host recently because we what we do when we create new programs is we we book a house somewhere far away, we drive to this place. It's usually a two hour, a two to four hour drive. There's things we do in the car with our conversations and taking notes. There's these rituals that we do when we get to the house. We lock ourselves in the house and we create programs. And uh, more recently, the place that we were supposed to go to was, it was impossible to get to. There was a big storm. And so we were feverishly trying to find another location. And a friend of mine says, well, why don't you guys just stay around here? Why do you guys have to go somewhere else? And it dawned on me that we had created this ritual and it was part of our creative process and part of that flow process. And and it, it makes me think of, you know, baseball players with their lucky shirts or what a fighter will do for the week before his fight or the day before his fight. And mm-hmm. are these uh, these rituals that we create for ourselves to help us get into the state, are these also considered triggers that you've identified? They're not triggers as much as a lot of the rituals are soothing mechanisms, okay. right? Let me give you just an example from the SEALs because one of the cool things about, uh, and this is really stuff we get into in Stealing Fire, all this stuff is now, you know, we're talking about states of consciousness, but now we have a lot of technology that can help us steer in that direction. So when the SEALs train in the kill house, for example, they are wired up with enough biometrics that their leaders, their commanders, can track 50 different data points at once from EEG brainwaves, a galvanic skin response, take your pick, um, and really, first of all, use this to steer them towards flow. Um, so we're seeing, you know, we're seeing a lot of that as, as, as well. Um, amplifying this. And somehow in the middle of this statement, I lost your question. What was your question? So my question was, you know, the things that we do to set ourselves up. Okay, the rituals. I'm so sorry. Yes, no problem. Um, So what we see with the SEALs is you would think the kill house, right? You're going in to fight bad guys and rescue hostages. When they step in the door, most people have a fight or flight response, right? Stress hormone spike, activity in the prefrontal cortex goes through the roof, brainwaves and high beta. The SEALs everything calms down massively. They get very, very, very calm in that situation. Now, is that, that's because of all the training, right? They have trained themselves, and, and that's part of what like BUDS is all about, right? Is you go so, through these high stress and teach you how to- But is it the people that it, it, it happens easiest for them, or do they actually train and they just like- So, it out to like, them? not only do they train, let me, let's go back to where we started the conversation. The SEALs deploy a mindfulness technique known as box breathing. Are you familiar with it? No, no. no. Okay, so it's called box breathing because there are four sides to it. They form a box. You inhale for five seconds, you hold for five seconds, you exhale for five seconds, you hold for five seconds, and then you go to six seconds, seven seconds, eight seconds. So here's the thing, Um, and you can try this right now if you want. If you exhale all the air out of your lungs and then hold your breath, your brain is going to panic very quickly. It happens really fast. And it will trigger the fight or flight response. These guys literally train daily with mindfulness meditation training techniques to, if you do box breathing, you practice it, it down regulates the fight or flight response. 
over time, you are training yourself to focus through it, not respond to it, you're depatterning. Hmm. So they have a multi-million dollar mind gym gussied up with all the latest gizmos that you could possibly imagine oh, to fun. help them do this stuff better <laughs> as well. And so to get back to all those rituals, what are we seeing? What is that? A lot of it, think about the challenge skills balance, right? You want to do everything you possibly can to keep yourself as low anxiety as you possibly can. You don't want it too low, right? You want to be fired up for the game, but you need to keep, because otherwise performance is just going to short circuit. So a lot of those rituals are about self-soothing. Now, that said, a lot of those rituals are also about focus and attention, right? And one of the things that, uh, that can be done to help people get into flow is you can kind of create your own pre-game ritual. And there's ways to do it. I think Josh Waitskin in one of the Tim Ferriss podcasts uh, talks about his techniques. Um, I, for mine, I discovered, for example, I'm a big skier. And I, you know, in my early part of my career, I chased professional athletes around mountains um, for five years and broke a ton of bones along the way because I am obviously not a professional athlete. And, uh, but I started to realize that, you know, even these days, when it, before I go to ski a hard slope, something really challenging and gnarly that's good consequences, so I screw up, if I'm fired up for it, if I really like it, I do certain things. Starting, like, even before, I started to realize that 100 feet before the chairlift kind of comes to, like, to the top of the hill, I will start shaking loose my hips and wiggling my hips to loosen up that part of my body to a way I push off from the chairlift to certain things I do on my skis as I approach the run. So I have taken all those things, which I do and will drop me right into where I need to be for, you know, a deep flow state in a high consequence environment. And now I use them, you know, a version of them before I go into meetings, before I give talks, before mm. I go meet with companies or meet with clients. So I've got the same kind of focusing my little ritual that I took you know, from my, from one environment, moved it into another environment and use it to, cause it drops me into flow very quickly. It seems to me like, cause I know anxiety, lots of people get triggered with anxiety with things they're unfamiliar with or new situations. And it feels like those ritualistic practices are familiar. It's like, I'm putting myself in semi-familiar situation. And so it's going to reduce my anxiety because this is what I do before a big game or before a situation it's like this. It's a double-edged sword because novelty, complexity, and unpredictability are flow triggers. All of them spike dopamine in the brain. It's a focusing pleasure chemical, among other things, and they help drive attention to the present moment. They help drive us into flow. One of the easiest ways to seek flow is to put yourself in novel, complex, and unpredictable environments or companies that want to do this kind of create famously Zappos, right, where, where he's building the downtown Vegas project and has designed his, his, his corporate offices to maximize random collisions between people who, who work for him because it increases novelty, complexity, and unpredictability, and it drives people into flow. That said, fine line, right? Sure. You, you, earlier in this conversation, you sort of alluded to emotional management, mm -hmm. and it's really key. Flow, like there's a lot of upside, big upside, 500% boost in productivity, creativity, four to 700% learning, U.S. military discovered learning spikes, 470% big ups. These are huge numbers, so much bigger than anything positive psychology can get you. That said, there's a downside. These are the neurochemistry that underpins flow is very, very, very addictive. 
risk taking goes up over time as you continue to have more flow in your life. There's thing, there's a dark side to this. This is, this is, you know, this is for adults in a sense. Um, when people come to us, the flow genome project, you want to take one of our advanced classes, you're going to get a letter from us that says, Hey, look, if you've got psychological issues, get them fixed because we'll only make them worse. It, you can, you can, you refer to flow as in another state of consciousness has it been observed, uh, you know, with metrics like, uh, you know, imaging? Have you, can you, can you, can you look at yeah, you know, fMRI? Okay. So, you know, if you want to talk about flow in the brain, right, you're talking about three things. You're talking, you're always talking about neuroanatomy, where something is taking place. That's what imaging gets you. Neuroelectricity and neurochemistry, which are the two ways the brain sends signals back and forth. And, Neural anatomy, where flow is taking place, we, that, this is work uh, Charles Lim at Johns Hopkins did it. He started, uh, some of the earliest work was done on jazz musicians, the difference between dropping into flow and improving versus playing standards. Then we did it with rappers, and now it's been done a, a lot. And so, for example, we talked about, hey, your sense of self disappears and time passes strangely. Why does that happen? What the imaging studies told us is that activity in the prefrontal cortex, this is the part of your brain that hires, houses your higher cognitive functions, sense of self, sense of morality, sense of will, complex decision-making, etc., deactivates and flow, wow. shuts off. It's technically an efficiency exchange. The brain has a fixed energy budget. And so in flow, we need a ton of energy for attention. So the brain puts more energy towards attention and shuts down non-critical areas. What we call our sense of self is essentially a network of activity located in the prefrontal cortex. Like any network, you start shutting off nodes, whole thing comes offline. So this is one of the reasons we perform so much better in flow is when the self disappears, your inner critic goes along for the ride. So that nagging, defeatist, always on voice in your head, your inner Woody Allen, Woody shuts up and flow. Mm. Yeah. And we experience this as, as, as liberation, as freedom. We are getting out of our own way. Same thing with time. Time, this is David Eagleman's research out of Stanford, um, who's, on, who's, a, who's a great friend um, and has done brilliant, brilliant work on this. But time is also localized in the prefrontal cortex. So as parts of it start to shut down, we can no longer perform the calculation. Past and present and future become one. You've plunged into the deep now. So... Imaging tells us you get deactivation in the prefrontal cortex. You also see brain waves drop from agitated beta down to kind of meditative theta or an alpha waves. And you see five potent neurochemicals, norepinephrine, dopamine, serotonin, anandamide, and endorphins, and possibly oxytocin if it's group flow, all flood our system. These are pleasure-producing, performance-enhancing chemicals. Why is flow considered the most pleasurable state on earth because these are the five most potent pleasure drugs the brain can produce and flows the only time we get all five at once so i have a question for you then what is your thought on things like microdosing to help you get in this state so it's a great question and you're you're leading me right to where i wanted to go next which is so a lot of what we've been talking about is work that i wrote about in, in rise of superman which is my big book on flow Though I've written about flow in I think five books, but that was my big book on flow. The question you just asked drops us into the new book, stealing fire. 
when we were working on sort of decoding the science of flow, flow is obviously one non-ordinary state of consciousness. There's a lot of them, right? There's a big long list of altered states. Hundred years ago, William James used this term mystical experiences to be a catch-all for everything from meditative and contemplative states, mystical states like out-of-body experiences or trance states, speaking in tongues, to flow states, awe, and psychedelics. And he used to, he called them all mystical experiences. And it's a hundred years later, and we've fractured all these things through our sort of modern love of precision taxonomy into all these different categories. But what the imaging work has taught us and what the new research literally done over the past 10 years have taught us is that under the hood, all of those experiences share massive amounts of overlap. So this means like think about meditation, flow and psychedelics for the past hundred years. If you were chasing flow, you were probably an artist or an athlete. If you were meditating, you were a seeker or a saint. And if you were doing psychedelics, you were a hippie or a raver, right? And these groups <laughs> mm -hmm. didn't really talk to each other, didn't really know each other, were very disparate groups. And it turns out, under the hood, same thing is going on. God, I love the way you put that. Right? So the, the neurobiology is the same. And by the way, the feelings are the same, right? In all non-ordinary states of consciousness, that whole list of states I was just talking about, we see the self disappears. We get a sense of timelessness. We get a sense of effortlessness, which is that huge spike in motivation, right? Like we, the experience feels so good. It's so intrinsically rewarding um, that we feel like we're being propelled to do it, right? It's no longer toil and struggle. struggle. We're being propelled into it. And the last thing that happens is we tap into a state of information richness. And that comes because we are trading conscious processing for subconscious processing. Conscious mind is a really powerful tool, no question about it, but it's a really limited tool. We can only think about seven things at once, right? That's the, that's the holding capacity of the conscious mind or to put it in bits. We can only process about 120 bits at once. And you're using 60 bits to listen to me talk. So we both start talking at once, your listeners are maxed out, right? That's it. That's the bandwidth of consciousness. And thought moves at about, conscious thought moves at about 100 to 150 miles an hour. When we trade processing in non-ordinary states, flow, awe, you know, psychedelic states, whatever, the adaptive unconscious takes over, there is no limit. It can handle 400 billion bits of information a second is the current estimate. Wow. And it moves at speed of up, of up to 100 thousand miles per hour well hold on so a second hold on a second how was that even measured or possible that the unconscious is doing okay, that so um i i'm not going to answer that question well okay the first estimate was made <laughs> by a guy named marvin zimmerman and what he did was he calculated how many bits of data each of our senses acquire per second and he came out with 11 million 400 billion was a calculation um, done by Tor Neanderson in one of the greatest books ever written called The User Illusion. This guy is sort of the Carl Sagan of Norway. And The User Illusion is the best book ever. And he breaks through, he breaks down how the entire calculation was done. But he started with Marvin Zimmerman's number and he's worked up. There's been other ways to do it. At MIT, um, recently they calculated, I think, 
how much information the vision system is calculating. So they 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 work forward from our senses or backwards from our senses. Oh, I see. Is, is the short answer, I guess. I see. So um, so it's it's all. And this- by the way, let's be, let's be clear. Let's be clear. Everybody I've talked to about this question, that's of course that's the question you're going to ask, right? That's the smart question. And everybody I've talked to about this says, "Hey, man, that 400 billion a second may be the wrong number, but the scale of going 400 billion down to 2,000 or down to 160, depending on whose math you go with, that is correct. Everybody agrees that is correct. So the numbers may be a little bit off." Point the is, it's a, the yeah. The point is, it's a crazy fucking difference. <laughs> it's massive, right? It means that, like, That's you don't incredible. Live in reality, right? You so and so. Think about this with flow. If let's say let's go to the top number of how much information we process a second, which the upper estimate is two thousand bits. In flow, we take in more information per second. That may only be an extra hundred and fifty bits. Who the hell knows, right? We haven't measured that yet. But if you're always operating on 2,000 bits and suddenly for a brief window you get access to 150 more bits, that's a lot more information. You can do a lot more with it. So is it safe to say then that because the, you know, the prefrontal cortex, uh, the executive functioning part of the brain, or I've heard people refer to it as the part of the brain that makes us human, uh, if you will, although I feel like that's super inaccurate reducing activity there allows us just to act and react upon information that we're processing at much, much higher levels. Because if we try to be, you know, super conscious about what we're processing, we can't, we can't possibly comprehend. We, all that we stuff. don't have the bandwidth. And so, um, probably the best way to approach this is, uh, Robin Card Harris, who is a, uh, neuroscientist at Imperial College in London last year did the very first imaging studies of LSD. And they noticed two things. The first thing we've already talked about, which is the network that makes up your prefrontal cortex that houses your sense of self totally disintegrates. Wow. They also found the second thing is literally the mechanism beneath the so-called mind expansion you get from psychedelics right? The drugs, psychedelic means mind manifesting. We now know where that's coming from. It actually turns out to be a dead on accurate term. What happens, and this doesn't just happen in psychedelic states, it happens in flow states, it happens during awe, happens during meditative states, um, if you practice long enough. And you can sort of neurohack your way, right? Dave Asprey's biohacking crowd, the neurohacking crowd, you can do this uh, with transcranial magnetic stimulation too. You can knock out the prefrontal cortex. But the other thing they're seeing is far-flung connections in the brain. So parts of the brain that are never, ever, ever communicating with one another strike up conversations. They form alliances. They lay down new pathways. So what we call an idea is nothing other than a bunch of neurons scattered out throughout the brain kind of forming it, crystallizing a new network, laying down a connection between them, it's pattern recognition. Hmm. So we get access when we're in these states, we have a built-in pattern recognition system. That's essentially what neurons do at a really basic level. The data, the database searched by the pattern recognition system expands. Wow. And in fact, that's exactly, we were talking earlier about anxiety. The problem with anxiety is it shrinks the size of the database, the pattern recognition system searches. So if you look at the brain of somebody who's really anxious, 
where somebody has OCD, you see roughly the same thing. Tight clusters of neurons with, you know, energy moving in circles around them, right? You can't get free of it. Interestingly, so here's, here's where things get really interesting and kind of crazy and important, I think. Because um, I think what's really important now is that we have to start, I think, cognitive literacy, understanding what's going on, how you're wired, how you're built, and how you can use that information to massively improve performance is critical. And what we're seeing, what we've seen, what scientists have found is that pretty much every species of mammal on Earth and some birds have found ways to alter their consciousness, to drop out, to change the channel on normal waking consciousness. And drug use rampant in the natural world. You have dogs who lick hallucinogenic toads. And their baboons will seek out ibogaine, incredibly potent psychedelic. Jaguars will search for ayahuasca. Uh, goats will gobble magic mushrooms. The list goes on and on. Dolphins get high on pufferfish toxin. The list <laughs> is really thorough. In fact, it's so thorough that UCLA psychopharmacologist Ronald Siegel, who did a lot of this foundational work, has argued, and a lot of people agree with him, that the urge to get out of our heads, the urge towards intoxication, is found in every organism. It is a biological imperative, a fundamental driver that is actually as powerful as our drive for food, water, and sex. Wow, question, really? Wow, that's The question true. is, of course, what the hell is going on, right? Like, you got to understand, like, birds get drunk. They will feed on, like, fruit will drop into a pond, it'll ferment, and they'll drink it. They help elephants do the same thing. You can find, you know, you'll be driving down the freeway, and if you've ever encountered, you know, hundreds of dead birds in yeah. one area, could be that they all got drunk and flew into cars. <laughs> that happens more often than you know. Right. So like in nature, as in humans, bad shit happens sometimes. So why? What's so important? What's so important is that every animal gets stuck in ruts. And when you're stuck in a rut, the brain is anxious and you're not getting any new ideas. You're just going in circles, literally neuronally. So they think of intoxication is a deep patterning instrument it breaks us out of our rut it makes new connections between far-flung neurons it's the foundation of innovation right if you're facing scarcity in the natural world you have two options you can fight your neighbor for more resources or you can make new resources from scratch those are your options right making new resources from scratch covering up with tool use any of these things require big leaps that seems to be exactly what we get from non-ordinary states of consciousness. What's interesting is you're, you're saying how uh, it seems to be like something that is necessary uh, for animals and humans. And you actually, it's funny, you make me think about, I have two children and you witness children seeking out altered states of consciousness through All life. the time. Yeah, spinning. All, yeah. They yeah, spin, spin in circles, they hyperventilate, they roll down hills. Yep. Yeah. Very, um, very, Andrew Weil. Wow, I've that, never even thought of that that's crazy yeah. when you think about that when you just you're and all of us did that at one point in our lives we got on a, a little one of those little ferris wheels spun the shit out of ourselves or all of us at one point have rolled down a hill like that yeah or you Never, hang upside down you ever see a kid just hang upside down and just look at things or you eat paint chips <laughs> all right let me let me blow your mind so right. yeah, bring it as we were writing so stealing fire emerged out of our research and flow right we're running all over the country we're training people up in flow and everywhere we go doesn't matter if it's the SEALs or Google or 
you know, Wall Street, like everywhere we are, people are coming up to us going, man, this flow stuff is cool. We love it. We're going to incorporate it starting right now. But our whole team last weekend was at a silent Vipassana meditation week where we met Wall Street traders who are zapping their brains with electrodes to change the channel on consciousness. We met whole teams of engineers at Fortune 100 companies microdosing for creativity on a regular basis, on and on and on. And what we started to realize is, holy crap, this is everywhere. This is, you know, and this unites all these disparate groups of people who would never write, like the Navy SEALs, Wall Street traders, soccer moms with yoga practices, you know, Silicon Valley execs going on meditation retreats. They don't have anything in common. They would have no idea, but they're all trying to do the same thing. And once we realized that, and once we had kind of the neurobiology of flow working as sort of a Rosetta Stone for all these other states of consciousness, we said, okay, this looks huge. How can we quantify it? Can we put some freaking numbers around it, right? Like it feels big. I wanted, you know, I'm, I, I, I'm a research guy. I like, I, I don't want to just say, hey man, it looks like there's a revolution going on. Give me some numbers or something, right? I want some data. Right. So we decided to calculate what we call the altered states economy. How much money people spend on an annual basis in the world trying to change the channel on normal consciousness. Not so this is not specifically all positive, right? We're not talking Oh yeah, as you say, are, are we count are we counting alcohol, marijuana, caffeine too? Or we started we were just saying, I gotta get out of my head any way I can. So we and we looked at goods and services and entertainment and oh, social media okay. and this is going to be a big number. <laughs> as at, and we and we were well and you we were so conservative because as you pointed out, social media is a big number. If you, I mean, the neurochemistry of what happens, you know, how much of social media is addictive, where we're seeking out state change, right? The dopamine high you get, right? When people are getting up. First thing in the morning before they say good morning to their spouse or getting out of bed, you're checking so social media, you're doing it because you want to feel better and you want to change the channel a little bit, right? But even that, we only took 10% of the total number. And still, as conservative as we can be, our figure is $4 trillion a year. Wow. $4 trillion a year is one sixteenth of the global economy. It's bigger than the GDP of Russia. It's bigger than the GDP of India. It is roughly the size of Germany's GDP or 25% of the US economy. Wow. And we are spending that every year. Now, 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 this tells us a couple of crazy things. One, it tells us we really need to start telling the truth about how critically important these states are to us. Thank you. Um, the second thing we need to start doing is starting companies, man, because there's four trillion dollars worth of opportunity. <laughs> out there. That's insane, right? And the, the crazy thing is, and we document this in Stealing Fire is there are four emerging forces, technology, psychology, neurobiology, and pharmacology. All four of these have become information sciences in the past decade. They're now accelerating you know, exponentially because they've sort of strapped themselves to the back of Moore's law, and they're getting more and more potent. More importantly, and, and, and this is you know equally critical, we know that there's a whole list of so-called 21st century skills. These are all the things we need in the 21st century, and we're really bad at training our people up in them. So these are things like high-speed decision-making, creative problem-solving, cooperation, collaboration. The list sort of goes to situational awareness. And the reason we suck at these things is because we keep trying to train up skills, 
And what we need to be doing is training up states of mind. Non-ordinary states of consciousness are the tools that evolution gave us to solve specific types of problems. Creative problem solving, high-speed decision-making, situational awareness, collaboration, cooperation. Those are states of consciousness much more than skills. And so we, like, not only do we have to start telling the truth about altered states, like the things that we need to thrive in this century, and I would say the things that we need desperately to solve the challenges that are in front of us are things we cannot get at the old way. Just we have to change how uh, how we think. And it's interesting because it, it sounds like you're saying we have such an incredible cap capacity, but what we need to do is work on our ability to be in a state where we can just start to work with that you capacity. Just, yeah, I mean, you have to like think about it this way. 300 years ago, French Enlightenment, Rene Descartes says, I think, therefore I am. And he puts rational cognition at the pinnacle of human achievement. And it's an amazing innovation, right? Suddenly, science replaces superstition. He kicks off the French Enlightenment. We've got revolutions, political, technological, and we end up where we are today. But the problem is no one built an off switch for all that extended capacity. And we've hit the end of what it's useful for. And we now have to start in realizing that we have all these other capacities that we're built for, we're hardwired for, right? Flow is ubiquitous, shows up in anyone, anywhere, provided certain initial conditions are met. And more importantly, now that we know that, hey, psychedelics, awe, flow, meditation, contemplate, they're all the same roughly, we can mix and match our approaches in ways never before possible. And we can blend things together. And let me just give you one crazy Navy SEAL example of that. So I talked about their mind gym, their multi-million dollar extravagance where they're training people up in state change and, and, and using it. So in the mind gym, one of the things that we discovered were isolation float tanks. Oh, Same kind that John Lilly designed back in the 60s that all, the movie Altered States was about. Um, and you know, once Lilly started doing ketamine and LSD research inside of float tanks, they became hippie curiosities. SEALs are using them and they've gussied them up with neurofeedback and biofeedback and sound and light. And they find that using float tanks, A, they can help their guys recover after missions much, much more critically, quickly, right? Like turning off the cell. One of the things that happens as we move into these states, all of your stress hormones, cortisol, norepinephrine, adrenaline, they're flushed out of your system. So it resets the nervous system as we move into these states. So really good for recovery. More importantly, they have discovered they can accelerate learning inside of these float pods. So SEALs have to speak foreign languages. They can be deployed to five different theaters over the course of any year. Hmm. And they're deep cover. They're behind enemy lines. They need to be able to understand what the enemy is saying, they, right? They really have to be fluent. And the best they could do was six months of immersive language training to get guys ready. And that was with the best students. Wow. They've been using the float tanks and the neurofeedback to, to put them into kind of a perfect receptive state where the prefrontal cortex is downregulated and, you know, learning accelerated and they're learning foreign languages in six weeks. Holy, Holy shit. Oh my God. That's a, that's yeah. a massive, massive boost yeah. in so, performance. So the, your point of, Holy crap, we're capable of so much more than we know. Yes, absolutely. Well, now. Let's 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 deflate the balloon a little bit. <clears throat> so I just want to say this is not the first time in history somebody has said, hey, man, 
non-ordinary states of consciousness, they might be really good for us. They <laughs> might be able to unlock all these things, right? We've heard this tune before. And as a general rule, not so good. Doesn't work out so well. 60s, Ken Kesey sneaks LSD out of a Stanford research lab and all kinds of tie-dyed hell break. <laughs> Sexual revolution in the 70s. So we now know that sex and actually kinky sex works better. There's actual data. Um, Perfect. That produces... Yeah. Really powerful flow states, alters consciousness. Very hard to tell the difference between, that, you know, what's going on in your brain when you're approaching orgasm and what's going on in your brain in flow. They look pretty damn similar. Same neurobiology, oh, wow. same thing with the psychedelics, like very similar states of consciousness. So they discovered this back in the 70s, right? Sexual revolution is going to lead to all kinds of wonderful stuff. And what do we get on the back end? Higher rates of marital dissatisfaction than ever before and spiking rates of divorce. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, these things go wrong hmm. and they go wrong for a lot of different reasons. And the, and the thing we're hoping for. Well, wait a second. Wait a second. What, maybe it doesn't go wrong. Maybe it's just helping these people realize they're in a fucked up relationship. <laughs> I mean, okay. I mean, could okay. it be, could it be okay. that? Could we argue? I will give you that. <laughs> could, we, could we argue that? <laughs> divorce rate. Hmm. So are you telling me that? Oh, I don't know how many couples are married in America, but 51% of us are making wrong decisions. Yeah. <laughs> hmm. I, I mean, like, I, you, you know what I mean? Like, I don't know. I mean, maybe we are. You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's hard to say. But, well, I think, I mean, and I, I mean, we're all of us in here are, you know, 35 years old or older. So I think, uh, I think it took me almost 30 years to really find myself. And I think the average person gets married before 30. So I think it would explain uh, a lot that when you. Dude, you got, by the way, no, I waited till I was 40. Oh, see, brilliant, <laughs> and, man. And no argue. I mean, like, honest to God, like, I really like, I don't understand what people are possibly doing getting married so young. I don't get it at all. And, you know, I think how most people approach relationships is asinine. So don't They're see now that's where I'm going with this 50%. I mean, if you, you I would think that a getting into this point of flow maybe is helping people realize like learning about themselves, learning about their partner, where they're connecting some dots that they weren't able to well, do so when they were 22 years old and un unable to connect like well, this. Well, I would argue... I would, I, I would give you that, but we run a flow for couples course. Thank you. Um, that's very popular. And one of the... You're right, by the way, right? You could very easily go, holy crap, this is not the relationship I signed up for um, and bail. Mm -hmm. Or you can, you know, use these states. What happens as we move into flow is all the neurochemicals that show up are social bonding chemicals, right? Why is sex so bonding? Because you get all these feel-good drugs, norepinephrine and dopamine, that's romantic love. Endorphins bond mother to child. Oxytocin is the trust chemical. And serotonin are pro-social chemicals that make you calmer and less fearful of other people and their ideas, right? Nandamine makes you more open to other people. Very big boost. So like, for example, when you go, and a company goes to do a ropes course together, it's not about a ropes course. It's can you use the high risk environment to trigger flow, group flow, and bond the team together and you know uh, quickly. You can do the same things in relationships, right? You can. Yes, I mean the, my point is like just you know leaving aside our earlier discussion, these states can be used and deployed skillfully to really tie people together and bring us together. I'm not saying everybody's in the right relationship. A lot of people are probably in the wrong relationship and get out, stop wasting your time. But, you know, for people who are on the fence, close good medicine. 
Yeah, well, it feels it feels like to me what I, what happened with the rev, with that sexual revolution is you had some people who got into flow state and started seeing things, and then you had a lot of other people who just had different expectations because of what they heard, and that caused a lot of problems. There's also a pendulum swing, you know, that that goes along here where you find a tool. Look, you know, you you could give LSD to ten random people. And some of them are going to get great experiences and there's going to be some of them that are going to have a horrible experience. And I think, you know, it's a tool just like anything else. And I think getting Absolutely. it, so I think sometimes the pen, and it doesn't necessarily mean we're going to progress and move forward because it's what people do with it. It can be a tool. My, I have a question about uh, the use of psychedelics um, and how, uh, you know, it's showing that it's putting people in these flow states. Do we have, because I know it's been very, very difficult to study psychedelics since the 60s. I mean, we've, we've categorized them, uh, you know, as Schedule 1, and it's almost impossible to study them unless you're studying them for negative effects. Do we have measurable metrics showing improved uh, creativity, productivity? Oh, uh, yeah. And I mean, we've got them going all the way back to the 60s. So couple things. First thing you need to know is before that research got shut down, thousand studies peer-reviewed published studies had been done we don't have a thousand i mean depression perhaps you know what i mean like that's a big number Mm -hmm. it's my point um a lot of that research has been rekindled we've got you know great stuff on healing trauma phenomenal stuff on healing trauma at this point treating addiction we're starting to get a lot of stuff the upper stuff can we boost our skills Harder to research, right? Harder to get funding. James Fadiman, who did research on microdosing back in the 60s, did research. He found, did a crazy study. We cover this in, in Stealing Fire, where he brought together teams of engineers at, at, at the Institute for Advanced Study in Menlo Park, California, all of whom were high-level executives from surrounding Silicon Valley companies um, who had been struggling for at least, I want to say, it's three months to solve a highly technical problem in their field. And he, they, they, it was a microdosing experiment. Half the group got mescaline, the other half got LSD. Across the boards, they saw a 200% spike in creativity, um, in self-reported, so that's you know not exactly measurable. And the list of breakthroughs that came out of that meeting, a new design for a NOR gate, a new kind of solar panel, a new... Uh, a model for uh, the electron, like really amazing breakthroughs came out of it. Since then, you know, the research went underground, it disappeared, but microdosing has come back and Fadiman has been doing more extensive research. I think he's interviewed up to 400 people who are microdosing on a regular basis at this point. Um, And, you know, all of them are reporting heightened pattern recognition, increased creative problem solving. So we don't have exact numbers but we got a lot of people saying yes. And there's research on flow and, or on psychedelics and creativity that was done in the 60s, like just generally, right? Interviews with artists and things like that. And it's sort of an anecdotal database, but it's very thick at this point. So there's, there is a, a tremendous amount of work. It is, by the way, incredibly difficult to measure creativity, right? There, so I'll give you one example. One of the reasons we know flow can enhance creativity is some work that was done in Australia at the University of Sydney where they took 43 people, gave them the nine-dot problem, connect nine dots uh, with four lines without lifting your pencil, 
from the paper in 10 minutes. And, you know, 95% of people cannot solve that problem. Most people get it wrong. In this study, nobody got it. They then use transcranial magnetic stimulation to introduce a weak magnetic pulse through the prefrontal cortex, knock it out, um, sort of heightened activity in the right temp right brain more than the left brain, and they induced a 20 to 40 minute artificial flow state. And then they, in a new study group, and this time, 40% of the people solved the problem in record time. Wow. that's So that's huge, right? And that's like actual measurable, there you go, um, standard standard metric and an incredible performance right so we're, we're starting to get that kind of information out of this so it's getting much much more rigorous it's also the other thing that's happening in psychedelics that's really neat i think is there is outside of established resource research there's huge open source research going on so for example you may be familiar with this but dmt one of the most potent psychedelics on earth produces very, very strange experiences, totally otherworldly, unlike any other psychedelic, and really powerful experiences. So there's now the hyperspace lexicon of the DMT nexus, where you can, it's a case study. It's, I, these were my experiences. This is what I learned. These are what I, this is what I saw. These are the revelations I have. And you can mix and match and see, are you a one-off? Did you just have a, a unique experience or another couple hundred thousand people have this same experience. We're getting these kinds of open source research projects into everything. There's a great database for near-death experiences. Mm -hmm. So all these formerly, you know, anomalous, weird, hard to study experiences, we're now getting sort of open source databases that are giving us sort of a toehold into the subjective. Well, I tell you what, and I know this is going to irritate some of the scientists uh, that may be listening but I really, really enjoy it. And it seems to be happening more and more uh, today uh, than it did even 15, 20 years ago. I really enjoy it when uh, ancient you know, wisdom and hippies and scientists all sound this fucking same. Like you're talking about losing you know, activity in the prefrontal cortex where we have our sense of self. And hippies have been saying for a long time, drop acid. And, uh, and dissolve your ego or lose yourself. And mystics have been saying similar things as well. And uh, it seems like uh, perhaps that ancient wisdom, there's a lot more to it than we like to admit. You know, all I can say on that is neurotheology, the study of spiritual experience in the brain, was essentially a field that got founded by a guy named Andy Newberg at the University of Pennsylvania in 1997 when he figured out why we feel one with everything, right? Which in 1996, you walk into a shrink's office, you say, doc, I feel one with everything. <laughs> You're going to the loony bin. <laughs> 1997, Andy Newberg does brain imaging studies on Tibetan Buddhist Franciscan nuns and goes, holy crap, there's a part of our brain that helps us separate self from others. So when we walk through a crowded room, we don't bump into people. People who have brain damage to this portion of the brain, they can't sit down on a couch because they don't quite know where their leg ends and the couch begins. In intense moments of concentration, flow, meditative states, some psychedelic states, this portion of the brain, which is sort of the right parietal lobe, it goes quiet. Mm, wow. So at, when it shuts down, it's another one of these efficiency exchanges, when it shuts down, we can no longer separate self from other. Holy crap, the brain has to decide you're one with everything at this particular moment in time. Since that discovery in 1997, pretty much every spiritual experience you can think of 
has been decoded. Trance states, speaking in tongues, flow states, psychedelic states, meditative, other whole list, awe states. Um, no therapy. We now have looked at so many of them, different kinds of prayer versus singing versus chanting versus really, really detailed imaging studies at this point. Um, to the, and, and two things are happening. The first is we are now figuring out not just how are these happening, but we're building devices that can recreate them. So, for example, there's a in, in Kabbalistic Judaism, you can have the doppelganger experience where there's this ancient uh, tradition where you can use this complicated system of visualization and meditation, certain kinds of movement and whatever. And the end result is you produce a double of yourself. You see yourself and you can ask yourself questions and get answers. And it's this crazy mystical effect that only, you know, the Kabbalistic Jews seem to um, have figured out. Right. And a guy named Shahar Arzi, head of the neuropsychiatric lab in uh, Jerusalem, at uh, Jerusalem Hebrew University in Jerusalem, figures out that, hey, wait a minute, there's a part of your brain called the temporal parietal junction. It seems to integrate a lot of different information to come up with, among other things, body position and space. Where am I right now? And if you screw up incoming signals, like if you have epilepsy to this portion of your brain, one of the things that can happen is you can see your own double. And so he does an fMRI study of a little girl named Miriam who is seeing her double. She's growing up in a Jewish rabbinical community. They think she's a saint. He scans her brain, finds out she's got temporal lobe. She's got epilepsy. She's on medication. She's fine. But the cool thing is he says, hey, wait a minute. I think I can take Abraham Abel Afia's formula for producing this double, use VR to recreate the inputs, and I'll bet I can get anybody to experience it. And sure enough, he's done it. Wow. So we've gone from, you know, the most common spiritual experience, unity that shows up in every religion, every spiritual tradition, decoded that to one of the rarest. And not only is it one of the rarest, we can now produce it in me and you so we can have the sensation. It's so, it seems to me like uh, as if uh, this, this particular state of consciousness whether you call it flow, meditation, you know, psychedelic, uh, or, or when you're on a psychedelic, it's almost like a, a a different operating system of our brain, and it seems like because uh, of you know modern society and the way we operate now, uh, and the way we work, and how distracted we are, that we've almost forgotten to take advantage and use another the other operating system, which has great value. So two things: one, you're totally right. And there's actually language for it. Monophasic versus polyphasic. Mm. A monophasic society is a society like ours that values one channel of consciousness, rational waking thought. Mm. Polyphasic societies were pretty much every society on earth if you go back 500 years ago. Mm. And in these societies, dreams have meaning, intuition has meaning, visions can have meaning, They've made room for non-ordinary states of consciousness. And we have become monophasic over the past 300 years, and we've milked it for all it's worth. It's a fantastic approach, but we've reached the end of it. We talk about it as making the switch from OS, operating system, to UI, a user interface, right? An operating system, if you think of your ego, yourself, your rational mind as your operating system, it's everything. But if you think about states of consciousness as different user interfaces to be deployed at different times, you have a much closer model of how we're wi- wired to work. 
and a much better interface for the world. That's, I mean, that's the other thing is, you know, just take something like mild to moderate depression, right? Very common ailment. And right now, what do we try to do? We essentially rely on talk therapy. We try to talk our way out of it. The self is a tar baby. You can't solve problems of the self by talking more about the self. You just make the problems worse. You see this with PTSD. Talk therapy for PTSD entrenches the trauma worse. Oh, does not help. Yeah. And we see this with general therapy. With the exception of cognitive behavior therapy, most talk therapy doesn't work much better than placebo for this very reason. But what else do we note about depression? Well, you can use exercise, right? Exercise for 20 minutes. You're going to introduce exercise-induced transient hyperfrontality. You're going to tire the prefrontal cortex out. It's going to quiet down. And you're going to – those stress hormones, your source of your anxiety are going to get flushed out of your system, and you're going to reset. We don't think this way, right? We don't go for a walk in the sunshine and get more vitamin D. We don't think about our, we just solve, and we try to solve every problem by thinking, but the research consistently shows we've reached the end of our psychological tether. I mean, just look at the stats right now. The number of Americans on antidepressants, depending on whose count, it's one in four to one in eight, depending on whose numbers you trust. Incidences of suicide, everyone ages 10 to 68 are at 30 years high highs and climbing still, right? Are the, any indication of our mental health, our society, health, our national mood is disastrous. And the reason is it's time to rethink all that thinking. It's, wow. it's almost, it, it makes me realize with all this new information on these states of consciousness and their impact on uh, our mental and even physical well-being gosh how irresponsible uh of our you know political leaders to make it almost impossible to study uh you know these these alt you know psychedelics or altered states of consciousness for treatment even flow by the way even i mean like the reason the flow gene Pro genome project exists and it's outside of academia is because i spent 10 years trying to get academics to do it and they couldn't get funding they eventually came to me and said, dude, we can't do this inside of academia. The door's closed. Do it outside of academia and we'll back you. Wow. That's where the Flow Genome Project came from, my organization. Um, so, yes, the research has been closed. That said, you know, thanks to, like, you know, like friends of mine, Rick Doblin, who runs MAPS, I mean, we really are making significant inroads. And while there are a lot of government agencies that are not playing fair, I got to give a shout out to the FDA. In the 90s, the FDA said, you know what? We're going to do our job. We are just going to evaluate medicines, never mind what everybody else is doing. And they started approving psychedelic research. And I, you know, I, what I've said is we've basically redone all the studies that were done in the 60s. Everything we learned back then, we've proved to ourselves are true, right? Like we, that's the work that's been done. But with Robin Card Harris, for example, last year in visualizing LSD, that's new. That hasn't been done before. There's work, Scott Barry Kaufman at the University of Pennsylvania is doing stuff on flow that has not been done before, right? This stuff has really rebooted. And a lot of it, you can, you can blame the government if you want to. And for certain, you know, one of the things we talk about in the book, in Stealing Fire, is 
if there's a $4 trillion underground revolution in hacking consciousness, improve performance, why the fuck isn't it front page news? <laughs> why are we not talking about this, you know, everywhere we go? And the answer is most of those conversations take place beyond you know, beyond the pale of polite society. And we use that metaphor beyond the pale. And we think there are three sort of pickets in the pale. And one is the pale of the state. And the thing you got to understand is we have always had state sanctioned states of consciousness. These are states Mm -hmm. of consciousness that support our society, support our agenda. Think about, so interesting story in the book, David Nutt, uh, was Britain's number one drug czar. He was their top drug researcher, you know, biggest government post. And five years ago, a woman walks into his office and she's hit her head horseback riding. And she's got severe brain damage, has totally changed, lost her job. She's even banned from her local pub. She's gotten so unreasonable. And this surprises David Nutt. He goes, wow, I see a lot of brain damage. It's usually drug overdoses. This woman fell off a horse. I didn't think horseback riding was particularly dangerous. He works the numbers. How often is horseback riding dangerous? He discovers that horseback riding hurts somebody or kills somebody one out of 350 times people go riding. He then, he's been, at this point, his job is to assess various drugs for their category of harm. And at that point, rave culture is sweeping England. Ecstasy is being called public enemy number one. And everybody's terrified of it. And he looks at the numbers and he goes, holy crap. One person out of 10,000 gets injured or dies on ecstasy, (laughs) on MDMA. Horseback riding is orders of magnitude more dangerous than ecstasy. And he publishes the results and the country goes nuts. Of course. Of course. I mean, people don't realize that the, the war on drugs was not a war on drugs. It was a war on the counterculture. We know this for a fact that we made those laws not because we were afraid of the drugs, but so we could have a reason to throw these protesting, you know, counterculture in jail. So now we have a tool, you know, to be able to do it. And of course, you know, it's very hard to do certain things when everybody feels like we're all one. You know what I mean? It's very difficult to create enemies and it's very difficult to hide behind certain things when people are going, hold on a second. Why are we doing these crazy things and why are we why do we have these stupid laws and why are we all fighting each other? Uh, it just uh, it's very threatening uh, to to some of the fabric of or, or organized, uh, if you will, well, the, uh, governmental the other society. Thing you got to look at. So what not ended up doing is kind of classifying all the different drugs of abuse. What's most harmful? What's least harmful? Right. Comes up with a top 20 list. And if you look at the list, if you're rating harmful drugs, alcohol is number one. Tobacco's top five, and the drugs that we're talking about, LSD, MDMA, mushrooms, there's 17, 18, and 20 respectively. But we have outlawed those drugs, and we have literally woven alcohol and caffeine and nicotine into the fabric of our society. And the reason is, if you've got a market economy, a capitalist economy, what do you need? You need people to work as hard as they can for as long as they can and then be able to you know, depress very quickly and get up and do it again. So what do you want? You want sanctioned stimulant breaks, the coffee break and the smoke break during the day to pump people up. And then you need the booze break at night to calm them back down and help them reset so they can do it again in the morning. So we have inscribed those states 
their state-sanctioned states of consciousness. We support them with our legislation. We support them socially. We believe in them. This isn't necessarily, you know, it's never about harm, right? It's not often about that. As you pointed out, it was a counterculture. If you go back through drug policy, you'll see 50, 60, 70% of the time when we make a drug law, we're making, we're passing a law that's actually about race, right? Mm -hmm. Marijuana was because we didn't want white women going to have sex with Mexicans. Opium was we didn't want white women going to have sex with Chinamen. <laughs> Cocaine was we didn't want white women going to have sex with black men. That's, I mean, like, go back to the original laws. In fact, The Atlantic did this great, crazy article um, about, uh, it was one of the guys, uh, Nixon's cabinet, and he, he was in the room when the laws got passed, basically. And he said, look, this was never about, you know, drugs. This was about who were the groups who were acting up, blacks and the counterculture, hippies. How do we get at them? Heroin, psychedelics. That's how we can put the most people in jail. That's what they did. Mm. So right? I got to I got to switch a gear on you real quick because I'd be mad if I didn't ask you this. And I know this isn't exactly your field, but what do you think about the what we're finding recently about the gut being connected to the brain and its effect? Are you Oh, it's a great question. A, not only it is a little outside my field, but we actually spend a bunch of time on it in Stealing Fire and the reason is all the research we're seeing on exercise, right? Exercise being incredibly good for us. Well, the, one of the main reasons is, right, we have a society that sort of treats us like heads on sticks. But as you know, it's not just the gut. Like we are a whole brain system. The whole body is our brain. There are as many neurons in your gut and heart as there are in your brain. 90% of the body's serotonin is produced in the gut, right? There's a whole gut brain down there. And flow, by the way, Flow has a deep embodiment trigger. You need multiple, when you can engage multiple senses at once, right? When you're moving, mm -hmm. um, it's it drives attention to now, it drives flow. It's one of the ways to get more flow uh, in your life. And, you know, certainly if, you know, a lot of this is about keeping anxiety low um, and things like that, you need exercise for all that. And, you know, what's really interesting is we're starting to get into, there's all kinds of history of, you know, dance, dancing our way into trances and things along those, using the body to alter consciousness. And people have tried to study it ish over the years. Um, but it is, you know, dance therapy is the only place they're really doing it seriously now. And I don't, I, I don't know enough about dance therapy. What I've seen, um, some of it's great and some of it, I don't know what I'm looking at. It seems very new agey to me. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, we're starting to, ask really interesting questions, not just about, you know, oh my God, we've got this gut brain, but oh my God, we can tune it with states of consciousness. Wow. <laughs> so it's just, it's uh, they, they feed each other. They, they, they back and forth. Yeah. Yeah. We, we are, we are a whole brain system. And you know, one of the, and the, I mean, look, the greatest research on it, right. The most successful at least is Amy Cuddy's work out of Harvard with power posing, mm. right? Amy Cuddy figured out that standing like the Wonder Woman for two weeks, two, two minutes with hands on hips and, you know, chest broad, taking up a lot of space, you know, pumps you full of testosterone. So we can change our states by changing our bodies. I'm doing that right now. Well, that's how we start every seminar, right? Yeah. We do our little power pose before hands we walk overhead, in. chest high. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it, you know, what, what tips, what quick tips could you give some of our listeners? You know, we have a lot of listeners who. Uh, are obviously very into fitness, uh, competitive athletes, uh, and we have a lot of entrepreneurs that listen to our show. 
what tips can you give them that they can do to improve their odds or be able to get into a flow state easier? Yeah, so the easiest place to start, if you go to the flowgenomeproject.com, our website, there's a free flow profile on the main page. Anybody can take it. It's a tradeology. It says if you're this kind of person, you're likely to find the most flow in these directions. Oh, that's very that's cool. That's really so, cool. And, it, and it's huge. You have 50,000 people have taken it. It's a, it's, it's a robust, rigorous piece of research at this point. Um, and if you want to take it farther, if you go to my website, stephencotler.com, there are uh, 20 flow triggers. And I, there's a, you sign up for my email and newsletter, you'll get a free PDF that breaks it down breaks them down or I think I've you know as you search my name and I've done a, a bunch of big think things on the flow triggers as well there's a bunch of video out there if you don't want to uh, download a PDF um, so start with the flow profile and then you know what the best at the world do for more flow in their lives is they build their lives around those triggers so okay. those the, the, those are the two easiest places to start you know in terms of flow and and, and you know more specifically honest to God, if you don't have a daily mindfulness practice at this point or respiration training thing, what are you doing? Like, why are you not doing that? It's, you know, the, the evidence on every level from its impact on mood. Four days of meditation, 20 minutes a day is enough to accelerate learning, increase creative solving problem, pro problem solving and heightened cognition, right? It starts impacting your mood not long after that. Like, Start with, you know, start with the simplest non-ordinary state. Work from there. Excellent. Excellent advice. Uh, thanks for letting us talk to you. This has been great. Guys, thanks for doing what you do. I Anybody who's, you know, just talking about these things out loud in public with other people, it's wonderful. I, I really appreciate yeah, guys, it's what, what you guys do. Definitely our mission. I mean, it's we're trying to bring people like yourself more to the forefront. It blows my mind that not more people know about this information, and that's a lot of what we try to do is get people like yourself out there. That being said, Stephen, uh, why don't you list off all the places or plugs? Uh, I know you kind of went over a couple of them right there. I want to make sure if there's anything else that you want us to Yeah, the, the, the stephencotler.com, flowgenomeproject.com, and the most important one right now is stealingfirebook.com. The pre-sale campaign that we're running for Stealing Fire is super, like tons of goodies. And for anybody who's actually really serious about uh, just getting more of this stuff in their life, Oh, that's an amazing goodie package. Very cool. Excellent. Awesome. Thank you so much, guys. It was fun chatting with you. Yep. Thank you, Thank Steve. You. Thank you for listening to Mind Pump. If your goal is to build and shape your body, dramatically improve your health and energy, and maximize your overall performance, check out our discounted RGB Super Bundle at mindpumpmedia.com. The RGB Super Bundle includes Maths Anabolic, Maths Performance, and Maths Aesthetic. Nine months of phased expert exercise programming designed by Sal, Adam, and Justin to systematically transform the way your body looks, feels, and performs. With detailed workout blueprints and over 200 videos, the RGB Super Bundle is like having Sal, Adam, and Justin as your own personal trainers, but at a fraction of the price. The RGB Super Bundle has a full 30-day money-back guarantee, and you can get it now plus other valuable free resources at mindpumpmedia.com. If you enjoy this show, please share the love by leaving us a five-star rating and review on iTunes and by introducing Mind Pump to your friends and family. We thank you for your support 
And until next time, this is Mind Pump.